I live in a house full of suffering, okay? As joyful and fun as the life of a child is, it's also so full of suffering, it's almost incomprehensible. And I love my kids, but they whine and they cry probably daily. And I'd, I'd like to think that it doesn't have to do anything specifically with just my house. I'd like to think that it's just the plight of, of a child. You're all looking at me like, no, this is only my problem. This makes, makes me a little concerned. Uh, I, I'm hoping that if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. You know, just little children, right? They cry because they don't have a sippy cup. They cry because they don't have their blankie. Uh, They cry because they can't stay up past bedtime. They don't get to eat candy for dinner. One day they cry because they have to take a bath. The next day they cry because they don't get to take a bath. They cry because their brother or sister got to pick the movie. And then when the movie ends, they cry because they can't watch the movie they didn't want to watch originally again. They cry because their brother took their toy. They cry because their sister won't stop looking at them. (laughs) And when you have four children at home, you can begin to think, that it's truly a really wonderful blessing that you don't remember the early years of your life because they must have just been pure suffering. (laughs) But how many of us would gladly trade the suffering that we've experienced as adults for the kind of suffering that causes a, a young child to cry and whine? You know, to be able to choose to suffer through the loss of a favorite toy rather than the loss of a loved one. Or the discomfort of not having your blankie versus the discomfort of losing your job. Or maybe the the struggle for independence as a child versus the struggle uh, to be free of addiction in your life. Or maybe the pressure to eat one more bite of dinner that your parents tell you to eat versus the financial pressure of always feeling like you can never get caught up. Or the trauma of having a cold as a child versus the trauma of being diagnosed with cancer or some other serious health issue. You know, if only we could go back to the days when suffering meant the minor inconveniences that children experience instead of the heart-wrenching pain that every adult becomes familiar with at some point in their life. And suffering is no doubt a, a difficult subject. I would say that it's a difficult subject even for the Christian And it's a question that people all throughout history have been trying to make sense of since the beginning of recorded history. That searching to understand it has been going on. And so thank God then that we have a book like Job to at least clarify for us some of the issues around suffering. And even if we can't get answers to all of the questions surrounding the subject, At least God has given us some wisdom in his word from the experience of Job to shed some light on our troubles. Job, who truly suffered probably more than most of us will in our lives. So we're going to look specifically at a passage in Job that's chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. But in case there are some people here who aren't too familiar with the story, I want to summarize it for you, okay? The book opens by introducing us to the character of Job. And the Bible says that he was blameless and upright in the very first verse of the book of Job. Which in no uncertain terms, I think, tells us that Job was about as good of a guy as you can possibly be. He was moral, he was God-fearing, a God-loving man who had character and was pious. And it specifically says that he feared God and turned away from evil. I'd love to have a description like that told about me. 
Okay? And we also see that he's a rich man. He has a big family as well. And he tries to lead that family like a good father and a good husband should. We see some character traits, some things that he does that reveal that to us. And then after meeting Job, the scene changes. And we see God in heaven. And Satan comes before him. And I have to say, I think this is probably one of the strangest scenes in the entire Bible. Certainly up there. And the great accuser, Satan, tells God that he's just come from roaming through the earth, running about, causing trouble, and doing the best that he could to defile God's creation. And God then puts Job in Satan's crosshairs. He tells Satan, hey, you're out causing trouble. Have you seen my servant Job? He's a good man. He hates evil and he fears God. And Satan replies, of course, God, of course, Job loves you, God. You've made him rich. You've blessed him. He's healthy. He's hedged in on every side from disaster, suffering, and calamity. He only loves you, God, because you've kept him so sheltered. And if you reach out your hand and you take away all that you've given him, he will curse you to your face and he will defame your name. Satan, the great accuser. And the Bible tells us that God gives Satan permission to go ahead and do what he wants to Job to see whether his theory about Job is true. The only thing he's not allowed to touch is Job's personal health or life. And in the next scene then, we see Job as he suffers a series of just mind-blowing calamities. First, his servant shows up. He's told by the servant as he shows up that he barely escaped an ordeal. The marauders came while he was tending the donkeys and the oxen and they killed all of Job's animals, the donkeys and the oxen, and the servants watching them as well and only he escaped. And just as he's finishing his last sentence, a servant shows up and says that he just managed to escape as fire fell from heaven and burned up all of Job's sheep and the servants watching them except for this one man who escaped. And then again, before the breath is fully out of this man's mouth, a third servant shows up to tell him that more marauders came and they stole all of his camels and they killed all of the servants watching them except him alone. And then finally, finally, the fourth servant shows up to tell Job that while all of his children were together having a party inside the house, a great wind came and tore the foundations of the house down and killed all ten of his children. And so in the blink of an eye, Job loses everything. He goes from happy, wealthy, material-blessed father to a poor, destitute, grave-digging man mourning the loss of his ten children. And here's how the Bible tells us that Job responds to this suffering. In chapter 1, starting with verse 20, it says, Then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Wow. Wow. If only I could be like Job and learn to worship God in the midst of my suffering and not be so hasty to shake my fist at him when things don't go my way. And now after Job loses everything, we find ourselves again in another scene looking in on heaven as God sits on his throne and interviews Satan one more time. And God just rubs it in Satan's face that Job maintained his love for God 
in spite of these calamities, in spite of his suffering. And I love it. God gloats over Job to Satan. And Satan, always the fool, he replies that the only reason that Job is still committed to you, God, is that he still has his health. And he says to God, make Job suffer in his flesh, in his body. And after you've taken away everything, this thing included, he'll curse you. He'll turn from you. He'll deny you. And so God gives Satan permission to inflict Job. And, God, uh, and Job comes down then with an awful, dreadful disease where his whole body is covered from head to toe, Scripture says, with loathsome sores. Loathsome sores. And his condition is so awful and so miserable that his wife suggests assisted suicide. She says, turn and curse God and just die and get it over with. Be done with it. You're miserable. Your life is a misery. And Job, Job's response is to say to her, shall we receive good from God and not also evil? And shall we not receive evil? And Job's response here proves his integrity, his serious love for God. But I want you to understand that in his response, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job is not suggesting that God himself does evil. Okay, because you could read that and think, wow, that's what he means by that. No, we know for a fact that Satan has inflicted Job. Okay? His suffering has come at the hands of Satan. But what Job recognizes is that even in the midst of his suffering, nothing is outside of the control of God. Satan is on a short leash, and he only goes where God permits. And if the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, who is still sovereign and still in control of all things. Now, a quick side note that we can infer from Job, and I, I just, I have to say this, and I want to preface it with the fact that I, I recognize it's hard, but I have to say it. Those peddlers of a cheap and meaningless false gospel of health and wealth and prosperity can be damned for diminishing the glory of God and replacing it with a gilded veneer of pathetic mere materialism. That's what we learn, for one thing, from Job. And I wouldn't even care to mention them except for the fact that so many people are following these people away from the truth of the gospel and they're perishing as a result and it breaks my heart. And as your pastor, I am accountable before God for what I teach you, for the truth that I proclaim. And these people who defame the name of Jesus by turning him into some kind of cosmic Santa Claus Joel Osteen, Oprah Winfrey, those types of people, you know, they do not know our God. Because our God both gives and takes away. And God gives himself. What does it mean that he gives? He gives himself to satisfy our deepest desires. That we would have more of him so that we might be filled fully through him. And if you want more joy and more peace and more contentment in your life, if you want to be blessed, like they say, don't pray for a bigger house or a nicer car. Pray for more of God in your life who gives himself to satisfy the desires of your heart that only he can satisfy. And understand, too, that God does not only give, he takes away. And this is one of the biggest things that these false teachers miss. 
to test the sincerity of our love for him and destroy our false affections for fleeting pleasures that cannot bring us joy. God will tear those things from our clutching hands so that our hands and our hearts are empty before him to receive more of him. Empty vessels is what he's looking for. And he will make of us empty vessels if that's what we need. And sometimes the biggest way, hear me please, sometimes the biggest way that God blesses us is to take away and blessed be the name of the Lord. Now back to the story because there's a more. There's a little more here. After all of his afflictions fall upon him, Job has some friends who come to visit and comfort him in his suffering. And ironically, the very best thing that they do for him is just sit in silence while he wrestles through his suffering. And for seven days they sit in silence, which shows you that these are some pretty good friends. I think that you and I could probably take a lesson about friendship from them. But when they open their mouths finally, we begin to see that their words and their worldly wisdom has very little to offer Job. In fact, in the end of Job, God rebukes Job's friends for the wisdom and counsel they try to give him. First, there's Eliphaz, who's followed by Bildad, and they more or less have the very same elementary understanding of our relationship with God. And actually, tons of people think like these people. Tons of people think like Eliphaz and Bildad. They tell Job that physically... That God physically blesses his children who are righteous and he punishes his children who have sinned. And therefore they insist that Job is being rebuked by God and penalized for some great sin that he's committed that he has not yet repented from. But we know from the beginning of the story that in the eyes of God, Job is blameless and upright. His suffering is not the result of sin. In his life. And Job asserts his innocence to his friends, claiming that God has brought this suffering upon him apart from any sin in his life. And they press him again and again and again, misrepresenting the character of God with this cause and effect understanding of God. You've heard it before, I'm sure. When suffering comes, it is because we have done wrong before God and he is punishing us. I would bet that most of us in the room at some point have turned to God and say, God, what have I done to deserve this from you? See the cause and effect there? Now, there is a sense in which God does discipline us for our sin. But again, in the case of Job, we know that that's not what's happening here. Job is innocent, and these men cannot seem to understand that sometimes suffering actually comes at the will of God and is no way related to sin in our life. And then Zophar, the third friend, speaks, and I'd say he gets it half right. He gets it closer. Zophar says that Job is such a sinner that he deserves far worse from God, which is true. Okay, We deserve the wrath of God for our sins. But he too makes this point from this perspective that Job is being punished by God for his sins. And what an awful sinner Job must be to have God crush him so forcefully. See that? Job's no little sinner. Job is a mighty, mighty sinner because of what God is doing to him. And Job should therefore be cheerful even as he suffers because God should have made it much, much worse for Job. And so Zophar too reveals his belief that if Job were truly a good and righteous man, God would not have hit him so hard with such suffering. But we know that it is precisely because Job is such a good and righteous man that God has allowed him to suffer so much. 
Let me say that again. We know that it's precisely because Job is such a good and righteous man that God has allowed him to suffer so much. Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him on the face of the earth when it comes to righteousness and godliness. Why don't you test it out on him? And the fourth friend then comes closest to the truth, Elihu. He rebukes the first three friends and even Job. And he asserts that God brings suffering because God is a loving father. And any father who desires the best for his children must at some point discipline them. And Elihu says that God has brought his discipline to Job to steer him back to God once again. And to put Job into fellowship with God. And I would say this is a much, much better understanding of God's behavior towards us and his purposes for suffering. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that intense suffering puts you on your knees and brings you back to God, if for nothing else than just out of sheer desperation for his presence. But again, in the case of Job, this explanation, it's incomplete Because we know that God was not reeling Job back into fellowship with him for his wanderings. Job was chosen to suffer because of his righteousness. And so at best, all of these attempts to understand and explain Job's suffering are only partially true. They reveal some true things about suffering, but their ideas are far from giving us a comprehensive understanding of suffering. Yes, it is true that God brings suffering in our lives to discipline us. Yes, it is true that God brings suffering in our lives to bring us back to him. Yes, it is true that suffering in our lives is often the cause of sin. Yes, it is true that suffering in our lives can lead to greater holiness, that it can be a refining process. But none of these things completely reveal the purposes of God in our suffering. And none of these things are sufficient to fully explain the story of Job. Now the final one to speak to Job then is God himself. And to be totally honest with you, it's a super tough reply to understand. It's hard. The end of Job is a hard book. And I wish I could give you some hard and fast formula that you could write down on the notes section of your handout there that would answer all of your why questions the next time that you go through a really hard season of suffering. But that's just not how it works. And when God speaks to Job, he does not give Job one single definite answer with which Job can go forward and face suffering in the future. Instead, he asks Job a series of questions. A series of questions. And God's questions, in summary, They remind Job that he is not sovereign God of the universe. They remind Job that Job is not the creator. Job does not sustain all things through the power of his word. Job has no mind capable of comprehending the eternal things of God. Job has no power to hold back the oceans in their place. Job has no power to give life at birth. Job has no wisdom with which to draw forth the rains and produce crops in their season. And God's long list of questions to Job pierces the heart of Job and reminds him that Job cannot comprehend the purposes of God. Even if they were fully revealed to him, he would not understand them. Now, I would say that a shallow reading of the end of Job could leave us frustrated, maybe even depressed, and without any answers to this really intense question regarding suffering. 
There is great comfort in knowing that God is sovereign and that he has a purpose for us in everything. And I love the power of that truth. I stand on the power of that truth. But sometimes in the midst of real life-shattering suffering, that idea only goes so far to console us, right? It's truth, and so that's good. It just doesn't do much to actually ease the pain when that pain comes. And I have to admit to you guys, the last few chapters of Job are actually some of my favorite in the entire Bible. I love these chapters because we see the awesome majesty of God. But the reply of God isn't exactly what we might have hoped for to hear from him, is it? It's kind of void of answers to the questions that come with suffering. But there is a subsurface theme in Job that we absolutely cannot miss. And it's this theme that I want us to spend a couple more minutes exploring, okay? Let's take a look at Job 19 now. Job 19, verses 25 through 27, we have this incredible prophetic word spoken by Job. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. And I hope that in whatever Bible translation you're using, that the word Redeemer is capitalized, because it should be. Because this is an early prophecy about Jesus, the Redeemer. And when you read these short verses, the theme of the resurrection jumps out at you. Job acknowledges that his Redeemer lives, and then he constructs an argument about his condition that is based on that truth. He says that because his Redeemer lives, even though his skin will be destroyed, in other words, even though Job will die, Job knows that he will see God in the flesh. And these verses are astounding because Job's asserting the truth of the resurrection hundreds, maybe even as many as 1,500 years before Christ. And notice that he does not simply say that he will see God, but that he will see God in the flesh. That distinction is significant. He knows that God has provided a redeemer for mankind who will come in the flesh to stand upon the earth. And that because of his faith in God, whatever else may happen to him, Job will stand with the Redeemer at the end of history in bodily form, even though he may one day die. And this is not just a spiritual reality for Job. It's a physical reality. The Redeemer comes and he stands on the physical earth and Job, with all of his flesh, will be resurrected. He will see God. These words stand and earth and skin and flesh, they are physical realities. Christianity is not some abstract spirituality. It has implications for the physical, for the real, for our flesh. And this is exactly what Jesus has accomplished for us. He lived in the flesh and he died for our sins so that we might live through him. He died in the flesh and he rose in the flesh so that we might be raised from death to life. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it. But I encourage you to read this chapter at home. It's about the resurrection and the gospel. And it sheds some light for us on this truth. First, it says in verses 3 through 4 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What that means is that the death and resurrection of Jesus was all foretold by Scripture. And Jesus literally died, not just figuratively, he literally died, and he literally rose from the dead. And what you need to understand here is that our hope in Christ is not built on some whimsical fantasy. It is based on the factual event of the bodily death and resurrection of Jesus our Lord, which happened in a definite place and time, just as Job knew that it would. And then Paul says a little later in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, like our video said, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And Paul is affirming what Job knew to be true, that through the resurrection of Jesus, our Redeemer, those who have faith in him will stand with him in victory on the day that he returns. His resurrection will be our resurrection. Adam brought death and suffering and evil into the world through his sin, and Jesus brings life to undo what Adam did for those who put their faith in Christ. And we as Christians, we believe that this is not just a fairy tale but that the event of the resurrection of Jesus has occurred and it is true and factual. And our Redeemer lives and at last He will stand upon the earth and after our skin has been destroyed, we too in our flesh shall see God. What a great hope. What a great hope that all things will pass and all things will be made new through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the death and resurrection of Jesus ties back to the suffering of Job in at least one truly profound way. So hang with me for a couple more minutes. Here I believe we do find some more comforting answers to our questions about suffering, okay? And the comforting answer is actually found in the sovereignty of God. The questions with which God interrogates Job are in fact an answer. The answer is that in all things, God alone is in control, even in the suffering that we experience. There is nothing outside of his supreme power. So let me see if asking a question will help us understand this a little bit better. Tell me, tell me, was the resurrection of Jesus just God making the most out of a really bad situation? Did God raise Jesus from the dead as an audible, as if to react to a situation that got a little bit out of control? As if he didn't know that Jesus was going to the cross from the day that he was born into this broken creation? Was God sweeping up an accidental mess? Of course not. Of course not. 
It was the will of God to put Jesus through this suffering so that God would be glorified and we could be redeemed. And Jesus, knowing full well that he would suffer and die and be raised from the dead, willingly entrusted himself to the hands of the Father so that out of his great suffering could come our salvation, our redemption, our resurrection, and God's glory. And God never has to make course corrections in the unfolding of his plan in redemption, okay? His cosmic GPS, which has programmed the beginning to the end, his plan, it doesn't need course corrections. It is never wrong. It never misses a turn. God never scrambles to get this thing back on track. The book of Job absolutely affirms this truth. God was the one who allowed Satan to try his best to destroy the faith of Job. God gave Satan permission to smother Job. And where Satan intended to destroy Job, God intended even more to use his suffering for his purposes and for his glory. And the simple truth is that there is no greater comfort than to know that our God is in absolute control. There is no greater comfort than to know that our God is in absolute control. So is God calling an audible in your life? Is he coming behind you just trying to sweep up the pieces, sort of apologetic about the way things have turned out? Is that what we think? It's only when we buy into the lie that our suffering is out of the control of our loving Heavenly Father that we then begin to feel shaken and dismayed and defeated. Christ, who is our Redeemer, lives, and in the end we will stand with Him on that day, and we will see all the ways in which our suffering worked out for our benefit and His glory. And in response to that revelation, we will fall on our faces and we will worship God like Job for the fact that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I heard an encouraging story recently about a Nigerian man who had suffered the loss of everything in persecution for his faith. He lost his family, he lost his, his home, he lost his possessions, everything. And when asked how he could possibly continue on in his faith, he said, all they can take from me now is my life. And then I go to heaven. Besides, they are so dumb. They do not know that my life does not belong to me anyway. And here's a man with a deep sense of conviction that if his life is in the hands of his loving Heavenly Father, then nothing can shake or destroy him. And I mean this with all the sincerity that I can muster. If you believe that God is in control of all things, then you can walk courageously through the greatest suffering that Satan can throw at you. And while you may be broken and destitute and feel defeated, you will not fail to stand because Christ, your Redeemer, stands. One more moment to take this one step further because I have to bring it all together, okay? Remember, remember, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away and blessed be the name of the Lord. How can Job come to such a profound conclusion in the midst of such radical suffering? How does he do it? Here's why. Because the Lord can give Job everything in this world and it will never surpass in its worth to the simple fact that God has given Job God. 
So if the Lord gives us wonderful material blessings, that's great. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But blessed even more so because he has given himself first and foremost. And if the Lord takes away all of our material blessings and leaves us broke, homeless, wounded, and rejected by men, then blessed be the name of the Lord because we still have the Lord himself and that at least can never be taken from us. And whatever suffering we experience, blessed be the name of the Lord because at the end of all things, Christ our Redeemer lives. And on the day of his glorious return, we will stand with him and we will have everything because we will have him. Let me pray. God, for those who are going through suffering right now, God, give them peace. God, give them courage. God, give them strength and give them comfort. God, I pray that they would know the power of your nearness as they walk through these things. And I pray that they would feel in their heart of hearts this truth. That if they have you and nothing else, then they have everything. And though you may take away everything else, if you give yourself, they can have all that they desire. And God, I pray that we would be people who live with this kind of conviction. That our God is in control. And may it give us all the courage and strength we need to persevere through the darkest hours of our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.